Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. In the regulatory conversation on crypto, the policy debate has been dominated by the legal status of crypto assets, namely whether Bitcoin, initial coin offerings, or even stable coins are securities or commodities. And the reason why is that the answer to that question will determine how any particular class of crypto assets is regulated. Now, as regulators have tackled the issue, everyone, and I mean everyone from the world of securities regulation, from academics to practitioners and policymakers, has tried to come up with an elegant framework or system for figuring it all out. Now, one prominent voice that has put enormous time into thinking hard about the question is Lewis Cohen, a partner and founder of the DLX law firm who, with his team, put forward a 160-page white paper dissecting the issue. According to Cohen, the conversation thus far has been confused characterized by an inability to distinguish when a transaction that involves digital assets is a security and when the digital assets themselves are a security. And this confusion has led to regulators going down the road of claiming that the legal status of a financial instrument can change over time. Instead, he argues that there is a much simpler way to understand how securities law works. Well, I've read the paper and am pretty excited to hear a bit more, so I've invited Lewis along with Zai Masari to join us. Now, Zai is a former partner at Davis Polk, a fellow at the Berkeley Center for Business Law at Berkeley Law, and now general counsel and co-founder at LightSpark. And she's written a summary and response to the paper on the Harvard Corporation blog and is placed better than perhaps no one else to really dig in. So sit back as we go deep, very deep, into securities law, the Howey test, and digital assets. Lewis, thanks for joining the show. Great to be on. Zai, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Lewis, this is a paper that you've co-authored. Um, it's really interesting. Lots of really important interventions in terms of how you think about what securities law is, how it applies. And, and again, since it's something that you and your team put together, maybe you should kick it off. Um, maybe you can give us a bird's eye view or or an elevator pitch, if one will, of, of your paper. What's uh, your argument? Well, thanks, Chris. And in many ways, you, you did a great job just in your intro in, in stating it. Um, uh, uh, practitioners, uh, jurists, regulators have really stumbled in trying to understand when a transaction is regulated by our federal securities laws and when a particular asset is itself a security. And we've sought uh, to raise that distinction and help people understand that while many fundraising transactions using crypto assets probably fall within our understanding of what is a security, likewise, many of those same assets themselves taken apart by themselves do not constitute uh, federal securities. 
Now, as many securities law professors and practitioners around the world will quickly realize uh, here, the Howey test is central to your analysis. Uh, now, the Howey test is, just for the audience, a, a test that was the product of a Supreme Court decision, uh, SEC versus Howey, where the Supreme Court lays out the basic features inherent to something called an investment contract. Basically, um, it's a case that's intended to tell the world where you have a security even where uh, the financial instrument in question doesn't necessarily track the features of a traditional security, like a stock or a bond. And in this case, the Supreme Court finds that an investment contract exists when there is an investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profits to be derived from the efforts of others. So in other words, uh, this, this famous four-point uh, test now, uh, the facts behind this case, again, just for a quick recap, uh, are worth quickly recounting. Uh, the case involved uh, an orange grove in Florida, where the defendants in the case owned large uh, tracts of land. And to finance some of the operations of the uh, company, it offered to out-of-state investors really a, a, a pretty simple deal. Uh, you had one corporation, the Howie Corp, which would sell strips of land to the out-of-towners. And then those folks could basically lease it back to a service company called Howie in the Hills that would then take full control of the land and harvest the oranges together and sell them off and give back to the investors sort of a pro rata proceeds. Now, the Supreme Court steps in here and he uh, or the Supreme Court takes this look at the combination of the land sale contract, the lease and service contract and ultimately concludes that um, there existed an investment contract to the extent to which all of the, again, outside investors put their money at risk in this common enterprise where they were dependent on the efforts of Howie in the Hills to go in and, and harvest the oranges in order, obviously, for them to receive a profit. Now, a lot of people have taken this case and particularly in, sort of in the view of digital assets, viewed it very, rather skeptically, and they ask, Orange groves, orange groves, you know, um, how can a case involving orange groves apply to something like digital assets? And there's been a lot of criticism directed towards this case, saying that it is outdated. Now, the, the paper here uh, is basically saying, no, now just hold on here. This case certainly has its uh, merits. Um, but Lewis writes that it has been the source of confusion by regulators. Zai, you pick this up in your Harvard blog and you start to really dig down into the paper and uh, highlight its implications for the state of, of play. So maybe you can just give us a quick snapshot of the Howey test and what's going on now. Sure. So when we're thinking about the story of Howey and how it's been applied to digital assets, I think there's there's a couple of really important sort of guideposts we need to think about. One is that um, the struggle here has been to try to understand whether transactions, that is um, what has what have always been called initial coin offerings, um, these are transactions that look like capital raising transactions of the sort that would normally be regulated by the SEC under federal securities laws, um, sort of how to fit those transactions into the Howey test and into the definition of investment contract. And so I think 
as an initial point, I want to make clear that the SEC's, the SEC's approach to this has been to try to regulate activities that do look like capital raising activity that the SEC has always regulated. But I think where the struggle has been is trying to understand what parts of the activity uh, falls within the securities laws embed and what part doesn't fall within the securities law embed. On the one hand, the SEC um, has been saying a bunch of different things. One, that digital assets themselves are securities. Another is that digital assets might embody securities. And then a third, uh, that uh, transactions uh, involving digital assets are securities. And the implications of those three different views is, is very, very different for the status of digital assets themselves. And I think the important step that Lewis takes is to look at existing case law and see which of those three is best supported by, by case law. Um, and I think where Lewis comes out is that transactions in which digital assets are sold may often be investment contracts or certainly can be, whereas if you look at the digital assets themselves, um, oftentimes they shouldn't be treated as securities. Lewis, I, I'm going to give you a chance to maybe jump in there, you know, because it, it's such a critical sort of intervention uh, that you're trying to make here. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to say that, you know, um, and this is just sort of building off of what Saeed just said, there's a difference between the context, the, 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 the transaction, uh, which in your words, can be an investment contract. Um, and you try to differentiate the transaction from the question as to whether or not the particular financial instrument is a security. C could you maybe sort of elaborate a little bit more on that as, as to sort of why that is so important and, and what that would mean in practice? Absolutely, Chris. Thank you. And that was a great explanation, Zai. So th thank you for that. Um, remember, um, Chris, that what we're really focused on here, as Zai explained, are, are circumstances in which digital assets or sometimes crypto assets are dealt in that are not involving fundraising. So many of those are just exchanges. So if Zai had some Ether tokens and wanted to sell them to me, neither one of us are raising money for a business from that. She had some, I'm purchasing them. We may do that privately between the two of us. We happen to be out for coffee and say, you know, I've got a, you know, much more ETH than I want. How about you buy it? We may do that over a centralized exchange. There's some very well-known centralized exchanges in the US or we may use a decentralized exchange. It's those sort of transactions. Or it may be sort of a custodial situation where, you know, somebody is is holding the assets. In all of those non-fundraising transactions, we need to know, are we dealing with a security, Chris? And, and so the question arises, how do we determine? What is the rubric that we apply? Um, in non-fundraising transactions, as Zai laid out, you know, if the digital asset itself constitutes a security, well, then there you go. And so in our paper, we look at it, we examine what is a digital asset, and we demonstrate that, that digital assets lack the one critical in our title of our paper, the ineluctable element of a security, a digital asset looked at in and of itself most of the time does not create a legal relationship that would give an enforceable right to the owner against some particular other legal entity and issuer. Most securities have that. 
Likewise, in most non-fundraising transactions, the characteristics of the Howey test, the four factors that you mentioned, an investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profit, primarily from the entrepreneurial and managerial efforts of others, are also not present. So if Zai and I exchange ETH, you know, sitting at a coffee bar, none of those factors are present. In the absence of that, there is no uh, basis for the securities laws apply to our transaction. That's an incredibly important uh, set of distinctions that you're making. And I, and I think that before going on and deeper into the paper, it's worthwhile having um, a couple of follow-up questions because I know that some of these securities law gods who are listening in are going to have a couple of questions, especially if they haven't read the paper, uh, which I would certainly advise um, uh, the audience to do. But, but someone's going to ask immediately, well, hold up just a minute. Uh, if I do an IPO of my, uh, I don't know, Facebook shares or whatever, I can still, uh, you know, hand off my shares uh, to using your example to Zai, and that's still a transaction uh, in connection with, you know, securities. It's still a securities transaction. How is what you're saying different from that? Yeah, a, a share of stock creates a legal relationship with a company, in your example, Facebook, and the owner, Zai, who, who would own that stock. That gives her certain statutory rights as a shareholder of the company. For most digital assets, let's take Ether again, if Zai owns an Ether token, all she has is the ability to send in a set of instructions to a network of computers. She has no right against any other entity. When you look at the definition of securities in our federal securities laws, each of the enumerated types of securities is characterized by one key feature. It represents a right uh, either either in, on paper or in the abstract that can be recognized and enforced by a court of law of an owner against a company. Because there are strict liability for participants in securities markets, people need to know when they are dealing with a security and when they're not. They need to be able to pick up, as it were, the security, the Facebook share. Oh, what's this? A Facebook share. It gives me certain rights in a company, uh, uh, Facebook or Meta now, of course. And, um, and, and I know that when people pick up as it were, an Ether token, and they look around, oh, what rights does this give me? It does not give me any rights. Uh, at the Ethereum Foundation, companies that were around when, when uh, the Ethereum network were started, none of those, they can all go out of business, they can all go away, and the Ethereum token, as long as that blockchain is going, will perform in the same way. If Meta or Facebook went out of business, my share in that company would have only historic value. And that's really the core distinction we're raising here. Uh, which is, which again is, is, is really interesting because you've, you've taken the time of sort of looking at section two, you know, for, again, for the securities law people, sort of sec section two here of the 33 act. And you've gone through that enumerated list of qu'est-ce que c'est? What's, what's the security? And you've, you've tried to sort of say, well, you know, there's, there is something that is in common here. It, it's not just a laundry list of different kinds of financial instruments, but you sort of make this observation of saying, well, they actually do have one thing in common here. And this is this idea as, as a, you know, of, of a certain particular right that that's, that's, that's given to, to, to the holder. Um, and again, just for clarification purposes for the, this last little uh, leg, well then what then is 
a security? How how is it that you can have the triggering of securities law where then there is no security as you know enumerated otherwise in, in that laundry list of, of of financial instruments? It's a great question. The drafters of our securities laws um, were pretty clever. They recognized that if they limited the definition of security only to those uh, types of financial instruments, as you say, people could construct arrangements, transactions, schemes in which had the functional economic equivalent of a fundraising, as Zayi was saying earlier, something where a commonsensical person would say the securities laws should apply to that because it's a fundraising transaction and the concept of investment contract was meant to capture those sorts of fundraising transactions. So as an annex to our paper, we looked at each and every appellate case that considered Howie and the idea of an investment contract um, and basically you know, concluded that that was the common theme. So that's the, the distinction. And, and that concept, Chris, has existed long before digital assets have existed. People have sought to sell something to someone else in order to raise money where whoever they were selling the thing to really didn't have a what we call a consumptive interest in that thing. You could have some whiskey, some earthworms, um, all kinds of different things, but the person doesn't want whatever is being sold. What they really want is to participate in the profit. And they're providing the capital to the person who's going to make that happen. What we haven't had is a circumstance with a vibrant secondary market for these things that are trading separately. So you can imagine Supreme T-shirts or, you know, uh, collectible, you know, Adidas shoes or Gucci handbags. Those are all things that trade in secondary markets, but just not at the scale that crypto assets do. And that's what raises these questions. So, so just also, you know, to relate it then to 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 the Howey test, for example, you know, you 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 try in your analysis, you effectively sort of um, highlight um, sort of like I guess what what you're describing as as a difference between the larger transaction and then the the object of the transaction. So, in in Howey, for example, the the object of the transaction are are these oranges, yummy, yummy, um, and the transaction includes you know, this, this management ag- agreement and, the, and, and, you know, to your point, a right to certain kinds of, of, of proceeds. When you think about then the, the application of, of your interpretation of, 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 of sort of simplifying and looking at the commonality of certain kinds of elements, um, both in statute and applying them to, to, to digital assets, you know, uh, it, it does then create some really important consequences for secondary Sales, as, as as you know, and 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 I think I'm going to turn to Zai here because you know I know that you've observed this. You know what then is the relevance from a securities law standpoint and an investor protection standpoint for then Lewis's interpretation of 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 our securities laws? And and I and I do want to say that you know because I'm trying to to anticipate different kinds of arguments and counter arguments here that that Lewis is 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 making an intervention where he's not really trying to change anything. He's just taking a look at the statute and, and the books as as they are and and and, and trying to say, well, um, there's actually an elegant reading of those statutes and even case law. But but there are some real consequences uh, for secondary sales and secondary transactions. So so Zai, maybe maybe you could sort of walk us through that. Yeah. So in walking us through, I'm gonna take one step back to the primary transaction, right? Because 
Um, something I tried to point out in my blog post is that the result of Lewis's analysis is quite an elegant one. And I think one that was actually in the minds of SEC staff as they were thinking about how they were going to approach digital assets. So if you apply um, Lewis's analysis to the sale of a digital asset, right? Let's take a very stylized example. Um, a project comes up with um, a cool new blockchain application, decides to release a token in connection with that. The primary sale of the token by that uh by the project sponsor, an identifiable group of people who are all working to build this project, um, to say VC investors, other investors, other uh, token market participants, that transaction, if you look at it, likely is a securities transaction uh, because the transaction between the project sponsors and the investors is itself an investment contract. So there, uh, the full weight of the federal securities laws would and should apply. But then, you know, later on, as the project grows and develops, um, these tokens become useful uh, as part of the protocol. And so other people start to want the tokens. So the original investors, a, a year later, a couple of years later, start to sell them out into the market, right? Without sort of passing on the same uh, contract, right, from the original sponsors. They're just selling it anonymously, let's say, on a centralized exchange or decentralized exchange. The question then is, are those transactions, then the subsequent transactions of other market participants who never were the recipients of any promises from the project sponsors, are those transactions also investment contracts and why? And I think applying Howie to the digital assets themselves in those secondary market transactions, um, at least under existing law, uh, the right answer often is going to be the digital assets themselves are not securities and thus the digital asset, the transactions in those digital assets in secondary markets should not be viewed as uh, securities transactions. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need more regulation of those markets and those activities, but that's not because the digital assets are securities. It's because the way those markets work, uh, look and feel and raise the same risks as other financial markets or other types of marketplaces. Um, so I think if you walk it through that way, you can see sort of where the argument can take you and leads to the important recognition that we need regulation of crypto markets. Yeah, you know, one of the ways that I, I, I try to teach Howie to my students is to sort of say, you know, um, even when you look at the, the Howie test, that, that those um, different features, those those different uh, benchmarks, that it's better not to necessarily memorize them sort of out of, out of rote memory, but to kind of understand that the Supreme Court is trying to say, okay, when you have certain kinds of dynamics at play collectively – they create such risks to uh, investors that, you know, securities law will sort of step in, right? So, you know, when you have an investment of money where you're putting up, you know, your own savings, right? Combined with perhaps in, a, in, a, in, in, in either a common um, enterprise, that's where you have maybe different coordination problems, right? Where, where in some instances, you may be more inclined to rely on someone else to find information. But if everybody's Doing that, then you could get maybe the under provisioning of information, right? Uh, where you're 
solely dependent on the efforts of others. This means that there could be information a- a- asymmetries between you and you know someone else, like when you go to, to I don't know get your car fixed and so on, right? When there's an expectation of profit, it means that maybe people tend to be motivated either by fear or greed, and that and that in in turn you know introduces more volatility or fragility. Um, or the prospect for abuse into a transaction. And so I kind of tell my students, you know, you can always read Howie to say, well, when you have all of that together, you have an instance where, you know, you're going to have mandatory disclosure and, and, and where you're going to have certain kinds of anti-fraud rules that, that kick into gear. The reason why I kind of bring that up is that when I think about sort of the natural implication as to whether or not then securities law, you know, applies to then secondary transactions under this particular theory. I suppose you could say, well, you you don't necessarily have all of those factors, I I suppose, right? In which, insofar as you can say, well, particularly with the solely dependent on the efforts of others prong, that that, you know, in a entirely decentralized environment and assuming that, you know, that's, that's, that's what we have, that that's not being satisfied. But it certainly doesn't mean that there aren't other real risks, um, uh, both given the um, abstract nature of digital assets, you know, like like they're really hard to understand and 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 obviously more sophisticated and other actors can be abusive and, and to take advantage of unknowing investors. And I think that that really creates a kind of attention and puts a lot of pressure in the absence of regulation, certainly on the judicial system, right? And on courts and judges trying to sort of figure out, you know, figuring out what 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 to do. And I guess a question I have for, for, for both of you is, you know, there is now um, a growing body of litigation um, that everyone's reading in the news, you know, from everything from, from insider trading to the unregistered, you know, unregistered securities or the, the claim that, that certain kinds of securities are themselves unregistered. Um, what's really at stake in these cases? I mean, um, you could certainly imagine a judge going forward identifying a certain crypto asset as a security, right? Or, and presumably as an investment contract, therefore, you know, I'm sure Lewis wouldn't really like that, but it would be adding more, uh, I guess, according to your view, more more confusion into things. But, but what's at stake with these uh, decisions? And, and can the judicial system, our court system, sort of handle the pressure of very sort of competing um, policy interests. So I guess I'm going to start with uh, Lewis with you first and then and then and then um, move to Zai. Uh, sure, Chris. I would say this in the vast vast majority of enforcement actions that we've seen to date, uh, what we discuss in our paper would not change the outcome, you know, one whit. You know, they are mostly uh, involving um, uh, two types of problems, uh, at least in the in the fundraising department. Uh, true frauds, where money was raised with malintent, with no particular uh, intention of of doing whatever the person raising the money said they were going to do, and a fraud's a fraud. And and the second category are, are technical, but important technical violations. We have rules for a reason. Um, you know, we require if you're going to offer securities to the general public in the United States, you have to provide certain disclosures. We might object. We might think it's unnecessary, but those are the rules, and people who violate them have violated the law. 
None of what we say changes any of that. Likewise, you know, some of the the best known uh, problems going on at the moment, things like, um, you know, FTX, you know, who are accused of, again, doing things that are knowingly uh, incorrect, using monies that were customer monies when the customers were told they were they were not going to use their monies, uh, you know, doing doing things like that, uh, misleading investors by giving them false information. None of that is 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 impacted um, by, you know, what we say here. The one case that would be uh, impacted for sure is a case uh, of an employee who worked at one of the national uh, uh, digital asset marketplaces in the U.S., who front ran um, certain, using certain information that was available to him as an employee of the marketplace, um, what tokens would be available for, for purchase on that platform. Uh, the employee had knowledge of this and recognized that that knowledge was valuable and he effectively misused that knowledge by purchasing the assets shortly before the announcement and then selling them later to profit. That is a fraudulent misuse of his employer's information. It was not intended. He was clearly not allowed. There were policies at the marketplace uh, not to do it, and he went ahead and did it anyway. He he sought, as is alleged, obviously, to obfuscate his activity. That is clearly, if the allegations can be established, wire fraud and illegal. But interestingly, the SEC went on to uh, allege that not only was you know criminal wire fraud involved, but also civil securities fraud was involved as well, because the tokens that this employee purchased and sold in the SEC's mind were in fact securities in and of themselves. And so to the extent that case, which is known as SEC versus Wahi, W-A-H-I, Wahi, um, to the extent that case winds up going to, to court, and, uh, to trial, and it seems unlikely because there are also criminal allegations, but it could. If the civil law case goes, that would be a case. And I think that's an interesting question. Was Mr. Wahi guilty of securities fraud or was he simply guilty of criminal, you know, uh, criminal wire fraud by virtue of misusing his employer's information? Or, Lewis, there's a third option since we're talking about outcomes, right, where the CFTC's anti-fraud laws would apply mm-hmm. because yep. if, even if the tokens were not securities, The CFTC has analogous uh, anti-fraud and anti-manipulation enforcement authority. So um, those uh, laws would apply to this case, whether, you know, in the instance that the tokens are not securities. And I think you could get the exact same outcome. You don't actually need securities laws for that. Right. Those are, I mean, say if you want to elaborate, it's a little bit of a subtle point. Those are spot transactions in commodities, not in commodity interest, but maybe just elaborate Uh, Dodd-Frank did change that because that's an important point. Yes. So in general, the CFTC does not have plenary authority to regulate spot commodity markets, but um, it does have authority uh, to uh, enforce against manipulative and fraudulent conduct, uh, including uh, when transactions are spot transactions, that is cash market transactions for commodities. Um, That's rule 180.1, right? Yeah, the, the rules yeah. are 180.1, 180.2. They were added authority uh, actually in Dodd-Frank uh, for the CFTC if we want to get really technical. So, so what we're talking about, Chris, here is that's you know a, a relatively obtuse area. But the real thing that's being argued here, just to make it 
crystal clear is where the appropriate regulatory authority lies over marketplaces in digital assets, both centralized marketplaces and decentralized marketplaces. And, you know, the crux of our theory is that parties using digital assets need to be able to examine the asset and understand from a, a, a practical examination of the asset whether or not they're dealing with securities. It shouldn't be a guessing game. The law does not uh, work that way. That's that's fundamentally not the way the law works. It can be argued that the law should work that way, and that is certainly within the permit of, uh, remit of a regulator uh, to argue that it, it, we, we need a new way of doing things, but that's something that should be taken up through Congress and a change in the law, not something that, uh, because that would be a fundamental change in the way our law works, and I think, you know, outside the regulatory authority of um uh, 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 of any given regulator to, to make a change like that. Yeah, and just to put a little bit finer point on what Lewis is saying, if I can, Chris, the SEC has taken an, a new analytical approach. Um, I call it decentralize and morph in my, in my article. Um, the, the fundamental idea is that an asset, uh, like a digital asset, could start off its life uh, as a security, and then over time, based on factors both intrinsic to the asset, that is sort of what the asset itself represents, as well as factors extrinsic to the asset, uh, the asset could morph over time into a thing that is not a security. Um, and in my experience in private practice, um, this is a test um, that is nearly impossible to apply. Um, it's nearly impossible to apply when you have the time and resources to go on fact-finding missions about what many different market participants are doing with the security, whether tokens um, are likely to be listed or not on exchanges, who's buying them, who's selling them, what's going on with the project team. And that is the kind of analysis that would be required under a theory where you have to look at 50 factors, intrinsic and extrinsic. And I think that is really what Lewis is pointing to and saying it can't be a guessing game about whether a digital asset is a security or not. Um, and this approach that the SEC has applied in different contexts so far is really unworkable. Um, in my view, at the time, the analysis was developed. It was truly a good faith effort to provide clarity to an industry where there was a lot going on um, and it was challenging to understand how securities laws applied to lots of different market activity. But over time, um, this approach has been quite unwieldy um, and unsatisfying, I think, both for regulators and market participants. And indeed, um, bringing it back to Lewis's article, isn't really supported in the case law. There aren't assets that morph in this way uh, described, uh, described in the case law. This is why your next article has to be, it's morphing time or something like that. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, but, but, but you know, I, I guess j just also for clarification, you know, when you read the article, you know, because it's, it's a bold, it's, it's really a very bold um work. I mean, it's, it's 160 pages, but it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot going on in that. Um, and, and it's, and it's really worth the, the, the time, you know, by making that distinction, uh, between the transaction and the digital asset, right. Th that does add, let's call it a lot of strategic clarity in, in, in the sense of understanding, okay, when, you know, uh, securities law would apply or not. Right. Um, to the extent to which you're saying it's transactional and the digital asset usually 
isn't a security. I mean, it 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 does seem to sort of leave open this back door here, right? That did you know the Howey test could still be applicable or something, right? To that particular digital asset, unless I don't know, you're saying that something else under Section Two that there's one of the other enumerated uh, sort of uh, candidates could apply to digital assets. And certainly there are other kinds of cases, Reeves, the Reeves case for notes and so on, um, where you could do that. I mean, I mean, Lewis, just, uh, you know, what did you have in mind there? Sure. I, I think it's a great question, Chris. And, and I know we're, we're kind of getting close to wrapping up, but um, thank you so much uh, for this. And and unless we scare people, uh, two things. Number one, it, it's 180 pages, not 160 pages, but it's only about 100 pages of text. And it's really readable. People tell me. So go download it. And, and we welcome feedback. You've asked some great questions. And to your listeners, if you're skeptical, please do read it and then give us feedback and reach out. In, in terms of, of, of what do we mean by most and not all, so let's say our law firm, DLX Law, um, created a token. And we said, we really want to incentivize to align people with the mission of our law firm. And we, we support the crypto community and we're going to go out. And so we're going to you know, sell tokens, or maybe even we're going to give tokens away, and we're going to tell people that we're going to dedicate 10% of the revenue that our law firm makes after auditing, uh, and we're going to distribute that to those token holders for, for, for supporting us and being part of our community. Or maybe we're just even going to buy back 10% of the tokens each year, but we're going to deliver value to those token holders, and we're going to promise that in the terms of our token. In that case, there is a token, but now it links to an identifiable legal entity, in this case, uh, DLX Laws, uh, we're, we're a, a, a Washington, D.C. Uh, limited liability partnership, and that company is creating a legal relationship. We're saying, hey, here's a promise. We're going to take some of our revenue and give it to you guys. It's a token, but now it represents a financial relationship. Coming back to Ether, as we said, the Ether token is nothing other than a tool that allows you uh, to give an instruction to a network of computers to get that network of tours to, uh, computers to do something. And a tool is simply not a security. Well, again, really great paper, great 180 pages uh, as opposed to 160. Do not be intimidated, people. It really is worth the read, and, and it is very, very readable. Zai, uh, thanks for joining us. Louis, thanks so much for uh, sharing your paper uh, with, with all of us. Uh, uh, I'll be really interested to, to hear all, all of your feedback, and you're both welcome back at any time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. What I really like about Lewis's interpretation is that it is simple, elegant, and doesn't require a change of law. And lawyers and law students around the world will forever thank him for it. Now, with that said, there are some obvious limitations. If you take secondary transactions not involving an issuer off the table, it leaves a number of very important questions, like how to address the vulnerability purchasers may have when transacting with SCAF laws peddling dangerous products that may not be investment contracts themselves, but were the product of investment contract transactions. Just saying general fraud statutes will protect investors won't necessarily take care of the issue, and it makes it a lot harder, not easier, for investors to make themselves whole. And there is also the outstanding question of truly decentralized products that aren't securities. 
Now, it's admittedly unfair to make the paper responsible for answering how Bitcoin is regulated, but it does point to a larger issue, which is how should the law respond to products which, while not meeting the definition of a security, nonetheless create certain kinds of risks that investors should be aware of. In short, the challenge of crypto asset regulation isn't solved entirely with Lewis's approach, but admittedly, a big chunk of the uncertainty is. And in today's world of politics, policy, and enforcement, perhaps we should just take the win. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.